Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Philippa of Hainaut. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hello! Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England from Elswith to Prince Philip. And today we are reviewing Philippa of Hainaut, Queen Consort mm. of Edward III. Now, Graham, you're going to be surprised. Mm. I remember why Hainaut. Do you? Yeah, before she she sort of sold him out in order to get invasion troops. Isabella. She being the last one, yeah. She, and he being oh. also the last one. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that very, very specifically is indeed everything yep. we're doing today. We'll we'll persist with the whole episode, though, in case people want to fill <laughs> a few other, few other blanks in between. <laughs> but that's the high-level stuff we're dealing with. So if you're on your way to work, turn off. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where you are at RexFactorPod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page and email us at RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. We're a free podcast, but if you'd like to hear more of us and get lots of bonus content, you can donate monthly and join the Privy Council at www.patreon.com forward slash RexFactor. Biography! So, Philippa of Hainaut was born in about 1314 in uh, Valencian, which is the capital of the county of Hainaut uh, and on the border of modern-day France and Belgium. And she's the daughter of William I, Count of Hainaut, and Joan of Valois. Uh, and her parents seem to have had quite a happy marriage. They have several children together and a cooperative approach to the governance of Hainaut. Hmm. Good. That sounds like she's going to be a stable person. Uh, the Bishop of Exeter, who is the one we talked about last time, who went off to uh, get his head hacked off by a London mob during oh, yeah. uh, Isabella's invasion, uh, he sent a very detailed account of uh, the Count's daughter's appearance as a potential bride for the future Edward III in 1319. Oh, here we go. The lady whom we saw has not uncomely hair betwixt blue-black and brown. Her face narrows between the eyes, and its lower part is more narrow than her forehead. Her eyes are blackish-brown and deep. Her nose is fairly smooth and even, save that it is somewhat broad at the tip and flattened, and yet it is no snub nose. <laughs> her lips are full, especially the lower lip. Her lower teeth project a little beyond the upper, yet this is but little seen. All her body is well set and unmaimed, and naught is amiss so far as a man may see. Sounds like he's describing a stag beetle. <laughs> like a, her lower eating parts are narrower than the wider top parts of the cranium. Uh, I suppose, actually, what else have you got to go on? We know well, that the portraits don't work. Well, yeah, I mean, but he, he, he really is going to the nth degree in terms of what she looks like. Yeah, I'm surprised he didn't put measurements. Now, a later annotation to this description indicated that it was Philippa, but historians now believe that it would actually have been a description of her older sister. Ah, because so, in 1319, well, uh, yeah. Well, we assume it's not going to be radically different, but as such, we don't have a contemporary description of Philippa. Though her effigy, uh, after she died, obviously shows her being fairly plump, with a broad face and a straight nose. Ah, I was hoping you like a. Uh, 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 an underbite that you could hang your coat off and like he was <laughs> underselling it. <laughs> uh, now, something people might have heard uh, about Philippa is that she was black. Huh? 
So there's a 2007 book which claimed that she had Ethiopian heritage, and there's a website, 100 Great Black Britons, which ranks her in fifth place, crediting her as being England's first black queen. Now, Graham, that, if that, if, are you leading me up the garden path here? Because I'm about to declare ultimate Rex fact. This again comes from the Bishop of Exeter and his uh, detailed description, because he described her as being brown of skin all over. Uh Now, in reality, not the case. Garden path. Uh, Well, hang on. All over? So, well, as far as any man may see, presumably. Mm. Besides the fact that the description is actually of her sister, um, he also says that she much resembles her father, who had got entirely Northern European ancestry going back many generations. Uh, And her hair is said to be between blonde and brown. Which again doesn't really tally. No subsequent description of her suggests she was of African heritage, nor any of her relatives. So, I don't think it's really actually true but why 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 would you just say that someone's didn't they say it was like the hair was black blue yes that he meant by that sort of blonde oh right well i mean no smoke without fire is there a chance there could be um any ethiopian heritage because they've got you know they're an empire at one stage weren't they? it's not impossible but the um the book which has this theory has no evidence for this and it's more likely that it was a sort of byzantine countess or princess or something rather than this Ethiopian but even then we're going back many many generations yeah so in reality on both sides of the family you just go back and it's northern European northern European going back and back and back and back so from Africa ultimately exactly but in her case she she wasn't black oh I'm disappointed that might not be the first time I lead you up the garden path today Ali we've got lots of lovely stories they're not all necessarily true I've packed my compass (laughs) Uh, However, Philippa was a little bit different from her immediate predecessors as Queen Consort, in that she was not from France, but rather the Low Countries. And while culturally Hainaut is close to France, and uh, Philippa probably spoke French as her first language, it was actually part of the Holy Roman Empire at this time. And given that the two previous consorts had been French princesses, being the daughter of a count might seem like she's a bit of a step down for uh, Edward III. Yeah, that's what we thought when we were doing the previous episode. Or certainly I, it seemed like it was a desperate thing because mm. she needed the men. I mean, in fairness, the Low Countries have sort of expanded commercially dramatically in recent years and Hainaut itself is very rich. So Valenciennes is an important meeting place for traders across Europe and a significant trading partner for England. So while it might not quite have that luster of being a, a monarchy and her being a princess... It's still quite an influential and powerful place, even though it's quite small. Uh, Her father also rules Holland, and is a very powerful man. Mm. Uh, And what's more, Philippa is the niece of the future Philip VI of France through her mother, and she can count monarchs and emperors as part of a wider family network. So it's not like, you know, she's sort of out in the sticks. It sounds to me like it's a match sideways, in in that these guys have always been... It seems like instead of marrying into royalty, they're marrying into business royalty. Like mm. they're marrying a, a musk or something, because the Low Countries never seem to have any, like never seem to have kings and queens. They're just major, like they're, they're like city states. Mm. Like they have, they they're business focused rather yeah. than yeah, a bit more um, of a bourgeois queen. Yeah, 
Oh, cool. I like that. She does, though, bring the, bro- the bloodline of two former English monarchs back into the melting pot. Hmm. Harold Godwinson. Right. And, rather less impressively, King Stephen. Oh, dear. Um, now, the potential marriage alliance between England and Hainaut in 1319 that the Bishop of Exeter was uh, doing his description for didn't come to pass. So, in the meantime, Philippa's older sister became the Holy Roman Empress... Mm. So again, quite impressive family links. Uh, while Edward II in England saw his rule become so unpopular that his wife, Isabella of France, switched from negotiating a French peace treaty to planning an invasion of England with her lover, Roger Mortimer. It's quite the quite the uh, U-turn. Indeed. But to do this, of course, she needed ships and soldiers, and this is where Hainaut came to the fore. Uh, Philippa's mother, Joan, was Isabella's cousin. Yeah. And when... Uh, Joan goes to Paris in 1325 for her father's funeral. She introduces Isabella to Roger Mortimer, who had been in Hainaut, and they start negotiations for a potential alliance. Because Hainaut is also at odds with the second at this time, and they have got the means to assist with an invasion. What, what's their beef with Edward? Oh, it's kind of from... They were initially negotiating for a potential marriage, and then relations gradually Did just sort of yeah. fall apart a little bit. The marriage negotiations don't quite go to plan, there are trade disputes and then there is a bit of piracy on both sides not being dealt with and they just gradually mm. get worse and worse. I don't think you need a reason not really to like Edward. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they had lots of contact with Edward II. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I see. Uh, so, their price uh, is a marriage alliance which will be between Isabella's son, Prince Edward and Joan's daughter, Philippa. Mm. And this is formalised in August 1326 when Isabella, uh, Roger Mortimer and uh, Prince Edward go to Hainaut uh, for a week or so and they agree Edward will marry one of the Count's daughters within two years in return for a dowry of soldiers, ships and money. Cool. Done. And according to the contemporary chronicler uh, Froissart, during their stay at Hainaut, Edward spent time with all four sisters and very unusually got to choose his bride. Mm, very nice. Because you've got a good selection of sisters. Indeed. So this is what Frassart says. This earl had four fair daughters, Margaret, Philippa, Jane and Isabel, among whom the young Edward was most dedicated to Philippa, and his regard and his love were more inclined to Philippa than to the others. And also the young girl knew him better and kept him greater company than her sisters. So I have heard from the good lady who became Queen of England. Mm-hmm. Right. So, in other words, Edward chooses Philippa because they fall in love. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it didn't seem unusual, but yeah, that's nice. Now, if we're being a bit cynical here, the fact that Philippa's elder sister was actually already married to the Holy Roman Emperor... <laughs> yeah. ...and the other two are just infants... Yeah. In reality, he didn't have actually that big a range of choice. No. No. Frassart gets this story directly from Philippa, so it might be that while she embellishes the circumstances a little bit, the essence that they formed an immediate attachment may well have been true. Mm. Well, that's nice. Yeah. He chose me out of a list of one. Uh, Anyway, Isabella's invasion of England in 1326 was successful. Edward II is overthrown, and Philippa's betrothed is crowned Edward III, though in reality, his mother Isabella and Roger Mortimer control the government. Mm. 
As agreed, Philippa comes to England at the end of 1327 and she marries Edward on the 26th of January 1328 in an opulent ceremony at York Minster and thus becomes Queen of England. But not in reality. Yes, so technically Queen of England, uh, technically Queen of England, but her actual status is rather limited at this point. Isabella didn't allow Philippa to have a coronation for 2 years probably so that she, Isabella, could maintain her position as the queen and thus not have to give up any of her lands that would otherwise be owed to Philippa. Indeed, it's only in 1329 that Philippa is granted the quite derisory income of £666 a year, still not given any dower lands. So there's still a sense that there can only be one queen at a time in England and Isabella is determined it will be her and not Philippa for as long as possible. Um, But... So just being married to the actual king, even though he's not the actual king, isn't enough to be not, queen. Yeah, not. And I mean, she is she's queen, but she's not, you know, crowned and anointed. Right. So it's not a very promising start for Philippa as queen. But the one positive is Edward. He's also enduring restrictions on his power and he's got very few people that he could trust. But Philippa owes allegiance to no one at court except Edward. And she's one of the very few people in whom he can truly confide. Mm. And they do seem genuinely to have fallen in love. Um, They seem to understand each other um, from the off, um, as example by Philippa's wedding present to Edward, which is uh, an illuminated collection of texts for aspiring rulers with lots of sort of military greats from history, and also an illustration of Edward holding a falcon, which is apparently his favourite pose. <laughs> That's his blue steel. You got me blue steel. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Then in 1330, Philippa is pregnant with her first child, and this forces Isabella to grant her a coronation because it's important that the future, potential future yeah. heir is born with her as a queen. So... Philippa is finally crowned Queen of England, albeit only when she is six months pregnant. But what was she living on before? You know, you, you said she got 600 quid or something. Mm. Um, what, how, you know, how was she buying her, her bread and feeding horses? And... I guess she's probably having to ask somebody if she can have some bread bought for her. Really? She was just, lit, she was essentially begging. I mean, I she's, not, she's Edward. Yeah, she's not out on the streets, you know, having to find her way in the world. She's in the royal household being controlled. Oh, I see. So she's just a permanent guest. She's a per- well, she's like a child, basically, who's not getting any pocket money. Right. Yeah. How old is she? Oh, yeah. So she's 12 um, to Edward's 14 when they first, uh, first meet in 1326. So mm. by 1330, he is 18 and she is 16. But Edward is now... 18. He is now becoming a man, and a son and heir is born, uh, the Black Prince, which all gives him the confidence and indeed the impetus to take action. So he overthrows his mother, executes Roger Mortimer, and Isabella is placed under house arrest. And indeed, Isabella is only released after the Pope wrote to Philippa, thanking her for her sympathy and consolation given to Queen Isabella. And he asked her to intercede with Edward to aim at the restoration of that queen's good fame. So despite the way that Isabella treated her, Philippa is evidently of a slightly more generous spirit and did help to persuade Edward to rehabilitate his mother. Uh, and after that, Philippa and Isabella seem to have had quite a, quite a healthy relationship. Can I just check that people don't think that she was black because she had a child called the Black Prince? That is also one of the uh, things people would cite. Because then they would be claiming that 
the Black Prince was black by heritage rather than like having a black suit of armor or whatever it was. Yeah. So the Black Prince as a moniker is not contemporary. Oh. Oh, so it's, it's nonsense. Yeah. Oh, that's really annoying. <laughs> anyway, Philippa is now properly Queen of England, and she becomes one of the wealthiest landowners. Uh, one of the wealthiest landowners in the country, with an annual dower of uh, four thousand pounds a year, plus numerous castles and estates. Nice. Uh, but despite this, she keeps a fairly discreet household, and she avoided the errors of previous ones by promoting only a limited number of people from Hainaut. Mm. Yep. Uh, a notable exception to this rule, however, was a page in her household called Wantelet de Mornay, or to give him his anglicised name, Walter Manny. No. Not him. Him, him indeed. He became keeper of her greyhounds. He's a Belgian. He's from Hainaut. Came over with Philippa. So he just was, he was yelling Manny, because that's the only thing. Word. I went to school <laughs> with a kid who did that. He was from <laughs> Hong Kong and he just used to shout Clarence the whole time. <laughs> This is brilliant. <laughs> I suspect Manny probably had learned a bit of English by uh, by the oh, time. Oh, I don't. Uh, I really can't imagine that now. I think I didn't realise it was just him going, Manny. Answer, <laughs> would you like a tea, Manny? Manny. Anyang. Anyang. He's Anyang. Oh, I thought I couldn't like that guy anymore. Um, he becomes keeper of her greyhounds, one of Edward's most trusted knights, and uh, if you're new to Rex Factor, then something of a legend from the first series, so check out the Edward mm. III episode to understand why we're so excited about Walter Manny. But anyway, it's thanks to Philippa. She brings him over. Oh, brilliant. Manny. Now, after a very unstable few decades in England, Edward III sought to model himself and his court on Arthurian legends. So he wants to promote unquestioned loyalty to the crown. Um, and he proved himself worthy of loyalty. He's a great soldier like his grandfather, Edward I. Yeah, right. uh, but he's got a rather easier charm about him. <laughs> yeah, what? Well, not the edge that could blunt your life by decades. <laughs> um Edward II had banned tournaments for fear of insurrection, but Edward III's first 18 months of rule seemed to be one continuous celebration of youth and chivalry. So he has pretty much monthly tournaments, each one a grand display of pageantry, unity and majesty. Yeah, he was living his best life, that guy, wasn't he? So I guess if you've got a picture of medieval England, knights in shining armour, etc., etc., other than it not being Edward I's Welsh castles, it's basically this point in history. Yeah, it, it, it's always sunny. Uh, they're frolicking in meadows and bathing in rivers. <laughs> That's how I see it. Under those weird sort of conic, like quite uh, narrow diameter conical stripy tents, always. Yes. Yes, we mm. might talk about those a bit later. So I suppose actually, okay. um, Edward casts himself as sort of first among equals, a very round table ethos, of course. Sometimes he competes anonymously in tournaments, so he's going hand-to-hand with common soldiers. At other times, he and his knights all wear matching clothing, so it sort of helps bind them together, this sense of a band of brothers. Mm. A uniform, start of maybe a military uniform. Mm. Uh, and Philippa plays her part at these events as well. She is always on display, along with her ladies, wearing new and magnificent clothing. Uh, she even becomes uh, a lady of the garter, Edward's newly a created Order of the, of the Garter. Indeed, she is the first Lady of the Garter. Oh, Rex fact. Um, at one tournament in 1331, uh, Philippa and her ladies were knocked to the ground when a uh, wooden stand they were 
watching from collapsed. Uh, thankfully, nobody was hurt, but Edward was so furious that he shouted he would have the negligent carpenters executed. Nice. Which is a bit more in the Edward I mould of yeah. uh, problem-solving. <laughs> Uh, but Philippa throws herself to her knees and begs him to spare their lives, which she then does. Is it, this sounds like it's made up, though. Um, well, there is quite a lot of that, but this one does sound a bit more genuine, that you can imagine an, an angry young man king when he's upset about something, declaring that he's going to execute somebody. Yeah. But it does foreshadow the uh, nature of their relationship as uh, king and queen. Uh, Philippa does gain a reputation for merciful intercessions. Mm, good. Subjectivity. Now, also like, I suppose, Edward I and Eleanor of Castile, Philippa follows Edward III um, all over the country, even on his uh, military campaigns in Scotland uh, and into France. Uh, and she also spends much of the next two decades pregnant. Oh, that's unfortunate. Mm, so lots of, not one pregnancy, obviously, lots of children. <laughs> <laughs> Gives birth to an elephant at the end of it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, they're always together and they have obviously a contemporary reputation for being unusually companionate. So uh, when they stayed at the Cathedral Priory in Durham in 1333, they agreed to sleep apart to show respect for the local saints and Cuthbert. But when Philippa came to her chamber, the monks all rushed off to see Edward to tell him that St Cuthbert abhorred the very presence of women and Philippa was asked to sleep at the castle instead. Oh, right. Buzzkills. Indeed, but that was notable is the fact that it was deemed so notable that they spent a night apart uh, that yeah, the chroniclers made a point of actually writing this down. So you yeah. never guess what happened. King and Queen had to sleep in separate bedrooms. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. If they ever were separate for quite a long time, they would exchange gifts of hawks and horses, which sort of symbolised the means by which they could be reunited. Aww. That's like... Although, is this a bit too perfect? It just make it makes sense for his whole chivalry, um, you know, thing. thing. But I guess there's so much that you have to do in public and then there's an effort that you don't have to go to in private if you didn't genuinely. Yeah. Um, anyway, but their personal success and their domestic success is also reflected in the country at large. The nobles did unite behind Edward III, and he did lead them to extraordinary military victories. Uh, Edward reasserted English dominance in Scotland, uh, and alongside his son, the Black Prince, secured remarkable victories against the French in the Hundred Years' War, largely restoring the old Angevin Empire. Brilliant. It's a golden era, isn't it? That's exactly what I've got in my script. Yes. Sadly, though, of course, such things don't last. Uh, in 1348, their daughter Joan died of the Black Death on her way to becoming oh, Queen yeah. of Castile. Uh, the plague took two more of their children over the years, as well as many of their peers and the nobility, and something like a third of the population of England overall. Grim. Um, over sort of the next decade, so like the 1350s into the 1360s, Philippa lost uh, her sister, or one of her sisters, and two more daughters, leaving only one still alive. And meanwhile, that golden generation of warriors, that, that torn, those tournaments and all those military victories, they all start dying off. But, I mean, people do that. That's always happened. Why, why is it weird that it's, um, that it's them? Is it just like... Is it that there was a cast of them, like, friends? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that is what it is. It's like, or like like King Arthur, I suppose. Oh, yeah. There's, like, a script to it. And, yeah. Uh, and this is golden age and all these great victories, yeah. but time catches up and then it all 
declines. Uh, and Philippa herself, sadly, uh, declines as well. In 1357, she dislocated her shoulder in a hunting accident uh, and never seems to have been quite the same again. She was certainly no, lang- she was certainly no longer able to go hunting. Uh, she always used to do with Edward. And her health seems to have been going downhill from the 1360s onwards. Uh, from 1361, she made numerous grants with the phrase, if the queen predecease, suggesting that she thought her time was limited. Uh, from 1365, she was only able to travel by barge and litter. Um, and it's at this time that Edward III takes a mistress for the first time. Oh, no, Edward. The notorious Eddie. Alice Perez. Okay, I, now I he's, don't remember her. Uh, I think we probably would have mentioned her. But um, he's, he's, I mean, he's almost certainly been you know, unfaithful on sort of one of occasions throughout the marriage, which would have been expected of kings. But this is the first time he's actually taken a mistress, so a long-term mm. relationship. And indeed, she bears him his first acknowledged child in sort of about 1364, 1365, and has a place at court. Wow. Um, but how many kids has he got at this point, though? Oh, loads. He's got plenty. Okay. So it um, wasn't like he w- there was any need to try and make a spare. No, no, he doesn't need a spare. He doesn't need a new wife. Um, we don't know what Philippa thought about all of this, but it may even be that her deteriorating physical condition made conjugal relations with Edward impossible. Mm. So she may even have in some way consented to the relationship or at least, you know, not objected as much as we might assume. Yeah, yeah. But we don't know. Um, well, I guess, uh, yeah, I don't know who I always say, but yeah. All right, yeah, because it's un- unusual actually not to have a mm. mistress at this time, isn't it? Mm. And finally, on the 15th of August, 1369, Philippa died at the age of 55. Oh, it's not bad, especially uh, as she started young. Well, yeah, and especially given that she was preparing to die for the previous 10 years. 10 years? Oh, that's depressing. Mm. Uh, Edward III was at her side uh, weeping, and he agreed to her request that they would be buried together at Westminster Abbey. Mm. Uh, she's given a state funeral in January 1370 with her tomb on the northeast side uh, of the chapel of Edward the Confessor, on the opposite mm. side to Edward I and Ellen of Castile. Nice. Uh, and her tomb is topped by an effigy that is thought to have been a genuine likeness. Oh, yeah, this is so this is the one where we know about the... Um, But yeah, so it's a genuine likeness, uh, her effigy. And rather than it being a generic, idealised image of a young queen, you know, on a coronation day or on a wedding day or something like that that we've seen before, uh, this version of Philippa is of a, basically of a middle-aged mother. She's a little bit plump, wearing a not terribly flattering outfit, but it's got quite a kindly face. Mm. Mm. So it's sort of touching, really. It's the face of the real woman that Edward III had loved. Oh, so we could actually sort of keep going to see her. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. So that was her life and consortship. How will she do when we review her? Well, we'll find out after a short break. Battleliness! Uh, Philippa is obviously hardy. Uh, like Eleanor of Castile, as we said, she followed Edward all around on his campaigns and she has uh, children uh, all over mm. the shop, including uh, Antwerp and Ghent. Uh, she's often close to the front lines of uh, Edward's battles. She witnesses the naval battle of Winchelsea uh, from the shore, and in 1333 uh, came under attack from the Scots. So she was staying at Bamborough Castle while Edward was besieging Berwick. But the Scots, in an attempt to divert him, uh, besiege Philippa at Bamber. Mm-hmm. To get him away from 
Yeah, Getting yeah. away from Berwick. Now, when Edward II had been besieging Berwick and the Scots targeted Isabella at York in 1319, he had abandoned his siege and it all descended into farce. Edward III, however, doesn't take the bait, continues with the siege and leaves the Scots to it. Why? Do, why if they're together, then there's no way they can launch this bait trap thing. Well, no, well, she's at Bamber, like, waiting for news of... Oh, him from right. the front line. So she is left to fend off the Scots, but the Scots don't actually have enough time to prepare a proper siege, and she's well defended. So instead, they're drawn into a battle on Edward's terms at Halidon Hill, which results in an overwhelming English victory. Berwick duly surrenders, and Philippa is safe. Lovely. Good. Now, in 1346, when Edward was campaigning in France, and this is the campaign which uh, involves the Battle of Cressy, course mm-hmm. uh, lionel of antwerp their second surviving son was left as regent but as he was just a small child at the time the reality is that philippa was in charge mm-hmm. and in support of the french king david ii of scotland invaded northern england so philippa rode north to durham ordering a muster of english troops uh, riding before them on a white horse which meant the same as edward at cressy uh, it gives a rallying speech before then returning to Durham to await news of the battle, which is, once again, an English triumph. Uh, and indeed, David II is captured by a squire called John Copeland. And when Philippa asked that Copeland hand him over, he refused to do so for anyone other than the king. So Philippa had to write to Edward III, who summoned Copeland, knighted him, gave him some land, and persuades him to hand David over. This is amazing. So after David's secured, Philippa makes provisions for York, Roxburgh, Durham and Newcastle, takes the Scottish king down to the Tower of London and then takes herself off uh, to France to join Edward where he's besieging Calais. Uh, That's all very impressive, but I'm afraid I've led you up another garden path, Ali. Oh. Philippa, as we've uh, mentioned, uh, knows Foissart. Indeed, she is Foissart's patron. And he seems to have either deliberately or through misinformation somewhat inflated her role in the Battle of Neville's Cross of 1346. Uh, it took place in October. Philippa had already left England to join Edward in September. Are we sure? I fear so. So it's interesting in terms of what it tells us about how Philippa's authority and courage is perceived, but sadly I'm not sure we can really give her any credit for the Battle of Neville's Cross. Because that was, that was heading up towards Ten Territory. A white horse at the front of an army. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, if you're doing a TV adaptation, that is still what you're doing, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we have spent over £500,000 on stunt horses. Okay? <laughs> um, that is a real shame. I'm, di- I'm really disappointed. I sort of wish I never knew this. <laughs> Built you up just to knock you down. Yeah. So as it is, we've got her, you know, quite hardy like Helen of Castile. We've got her travelling around everywhere. She's near the front line. She sometimes comes into danger herself, but we don't really have her leading troops or but she, showing much agency in terms of big independent action. It doesn't have to be a military thing for no. battling some consorts, obviously, but equally. Yeah. I think the fact that there was that uh, myth of her on the white horse exists shows that people could have believed it. Mm. You know, it shows her character was capable. I feel like she's ready to step up to the plate if required. Yeah. But sadly, not actually mm. the case. But she doesn't have any of that self-agency. Mm. But does she need it? Because she's really happy with her husband and everything's going all right. Yeah, which is fine. But I guess for battliness, maybe not 
the ideal circumstances mm. to get a good school. She's got the chop. She's got some courage. She's hardy. She's she's there about doing stuff, mm. but she doesn't have any real independent action or agency in that area. I think to warrant you know much more than I don't know, like a, a three or something. Oh yeah, I don't know why I want to push it, nudge nudge it higher, but there's not there's nothing you've said that actually you can get hold of. All right, I'll, I'll agree with you then. I'll go three, three and a three, so that's six for battliness. Scandal. Now, surprisingly, there is a uh, a whiff of scandal. No. In 1341, Edward III wrote to the Pope, claiming that the Archbishop of Canterbury had spoken separately to me of my wife and to my wife of me, in order that, if he were listened to, he might provoke us to such anger as to divide us forever. Oh. Okay, so I was hoping the Archbishop was, um, yeah. A male nun. Yeah, that would have been great. Uh, well, I mean, the details are frustratingly lacking. So, I mean, maybe you know, there was some kind of uh, personal mm. revelation that the Archbishop made. But it's most likely something deeply personal to the couple. And it's unlikely to be adultery on Edward's part because that would have been very well known that he was up to that quite regularly. So the likelihood is that it's an accusation made against Philippa. And Edward... Um, trusts her enough to say that, well, that's clearly nonsense. You're just trying to cause trouble. Mm. Their fourth mm. surviving son, uh, Edmund of Langley, was born in 1341, which is the same time mm. as this. And if he was full term, he would have been conceived while Edward III was at Tournai, but Philippa was at Ghent. Uh-oh. Hmm. Okay, but... And Edward is slower to make Edmund an earl than his brother's. So you wonder, maybe he did have a little bit of doubt in his mind as to Edmund's parentage. Really? Again, the answer, I think, disappointingly, is going to be no. Yeah, that is disappointing, but actually I was sort of hoping it wasn't true, because <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't believe that one. I didn't want this to be where she gets her score. Yeah, yeah, she didn't, that didn't fit the ideal of her in my mind. Edmund would only have needed to have been born 16 days early for Edward to feasibly be the father. Oh, that's totally normal, isn't it? So that's, yeah, definitely, definitely could have happened. Uh, and there's no evidence of any tension between Edward and Philip following this mysterious accusation. And indeed, Edmund is acknowledged uh, as an earl later on. He's in the order of succession that Edward III publishes. So there's no real reason to see that he's dramatically unfavoured by his father. And as you said, if anything, it probably speaks to how close they were that a senior prelate like the Archbishop of Canterbury can make such an accusation and it doesn't affect their relationship. Yeah, they just go straight to each other and say, did you hear what bloody uh, Egbert was saying? <laughs> yeah, I know, he's off his rock on that one. I'll, I'll speak to the Pope, don't worry. Don't worry. Uh, anyway, York. <laughs> yeah, instead, Edward and Philippa's marriage uh, is long and harmonious one and Philippa's reputation is completely untarnished. Good. Good and yet for scandal. Yeah, I don't know why I'm saying good. <laughs> She wants it to be a nice, happy story. Yeah, I do. I do. It was There's quite, this, the, you know, last time was quite tense with Isabella and Edward, wasn't it? Yeah, and I've wa been watching Vigil on the telly. I just need a nice, you know, not, something nice. Uh, so for Scandal, Philippa, I fear it's going to be a zero for me. Yeah, zero. Absolutely. And well done. <laughs> Subjectivity. 
Philippa, other than she's not scored highly for Battling and Scandal, but in many ways she's the ideal medieval consort. Uh, she presides over a cultured court. She employs her own illuminator. And several of her illuminated manuscripts survive to this day. Uh, now, you were mentioning about uh, funny uh, conical, conical tents. Yeah. And this yeah, image yeah. we have of this period. Anyone who's studied this period, or maybe seen it at school, you've seen little pictures in textbooks, you'll have this memory of these beautiful illustrations of major events like Isabella's invasion, the Hundred Years' War, and things like that. And mm. most of these will be from the renowned Chronicles, the uh, work of the contemporary historian and her fellow Hainauter, Foissart. Oh, right. So lots of these illustrations are for his history book. Um, it's his major work, and it's a chronicle of the age, covering events in England, Scotland, France, and beyond, from 1327 uh, to 1400. And with Philippa's support, Foissart travels all across Europe, gaining first-hand accounts of major battles and events, um, and allows him to describe them in great detail and with quotes and all sorts of things. Uh, he's a familiar face at the major courts of Europe. He serves the Black Prince in Aquitaine. He visits David II in Scotland. He attends the wedding of uh, Philippa's second son, Lionel of Antwerp, in Milan, uh, it was an event at which Geoffrey Chaucer and Petrarch are also both present. Really? Mm. Oh, amazing. Hello, magazine, front cover stuff <laughs> of the day. Um, uh, what, was that, what was that bit about the wedding? She went, to, she attended this... He attended it. He attended it, the, the, all in the, in the um, role of, like, photographer. Yeah. All oh, right. That's good. So whilst it's not yeah, always completely got... accurate, as we've seen from some of the slightly tall stories where the details are a little bit embellished, it's still an essential source for the period. And it's thanks to Philippa that it was produced. He personally handed her a copy of his first volume when it was complete. That's brilliant. Imagine if we had that throughout. So they're like those sort of drawings where uh, if there's a castle siege going on, the people are in the foreground and they're as big as the castle and all that. And there's, some... there's always clusters, massive clusters of knights in black armour really tightly packed with spears and yeah okay i'm just trying to pick, get it in my an image um she also is promoter of learning in uh, 1341 she became patron of the newly established queen's college uh, in oxford which set something of a trend for her successors as queens she does she that's her mm, that is her queen oh. Uh, she provided the majority of the funds and in 1342 obtained confirmation of a foundation for the Pope. Uh, also granted an annual sum for the sustenance and aid of the provost and for poor scholars at Queen's College. Uh, Philippa is credited with creating a very close royal family. So we've said about obviously her relationship with Edward III, but also with all the uh, children as well. They seem to have all got on very well. This is the first time since Henry II that we've had an English king with a large brood of surviving sons. But unlike Henry, the brothers all get on very well with each other and with their father. Oh, that's good. Uh, and it's no trivial matter, this sort of happy family business. We saw how destructive the rivalries of Henry II's sons were to his reign mm. and the succession and all there, the way that the Angevin Empire ultimately collapses. For Edward, his sons are a source of strength and indeed the Black Prince captures the King of France at the Battle yeah. of Poitiers. So cool. It's so cool. But it's Philip as this crucial role of keeping this family close and and together yeah. in a way that we haven't always seen with the royal family. Yeah. Yeah, so this is a royal family that we'd recognise a bit more. Yeah. Because that's what 
it's like today, you know, the nuclear family type thing. Uh, Philippa seems to have had a very kindly nature, and her surviving letters show her intervening in support of good causes, requesting uh, inquiries into overtaxation of her tenants. Uh, in 1354, she instructed her attorney not to execute writs against those indebted to her, uh, probably for Queen's gold, and until it was clear that they had the ability to pay. Oh, good for her. Uh, a lovely personal example is shown in 1357 when she wrote to the Bishop of Rochester uh, asking for a £10 debt for one of her servants to be charged to her because he'd taken money out on her account and she was concerned that he may not hereafter be distrained or aggrieved because of this. Oh, nice. So again, just, obviously, oh, yeah. perfectly reasonable, normal thing to do, but it's quite nice that she's taking the time and effort for yeah, personally. Yeah, to actually do it. Uh, she's renowned for making intercessions to secure mercy with a particular sympathy for pregnant women uh, and children. So she secured a pardon for an 11-year-old girl uh, convicted of robbery in 1328, uh, a pregnant woman who'd stolen a coat at York in 1333 and another in 1356 caught for stealing in Nottingham. And the two pregnant women had been condemned to death for their uh, robbery but are given clemency thanks to Philippa's intervention. It's such a hard life, isn't it? Mm. However, by far her most famous intercession, and the one which probably defines her reputation for contemporaries and many people thereafter, was, was for the Calais Burgers. So after Edward's great victory at Cressy, he then besieged Calais, and because it took so long, when they surrendered, he refused to, give, uh, to grant them terms. And it was only following a reprimand from Walter Manny that he agreed to spare uh, the majority of the population if the six leading citizens would surrender to him at my absolute disposal with ropes around their necks. Mm. Well, so he just wants the six leaders dead instead. Mm. So when the six came out with nooses around their necks, they beg Edward for mercy, expecting that this is all just part of a public, you know, mm. prostrating ourselves and you give mercy. Uh, but no, he just ordered them all to be beheaded. Although, That's a waste. They'd already got the ropes around the neck. No, long this knot took me. <laughs> I'd have been here earlier, which is your whole beef. <laughs> Uh, and Edward won't relent, despite Manny and others uh, protesting. But then, according to Froissart, the noble Queen of England, who was heavily pregnant, humbled herself greatly and wept so tenderly that none could bear it. The valiant and good lady threw herself on her knees before the king and said, Ah, my dear lord, since I came across the sea in great peril, as you know, I have asked nothing of you, nor required any favour. Now I humbly pray and request of you a favour, that for the son of the Holy Mary and for the love of me, you shall wish to have mercy on these six men. And of course, yeah, sure enough. faced with Philip's entreaties, he relents and the men are spared. Uh, now, as ever, the account is a little bit embellished. Um, oh. Philip was not very pregnant. Um, and it, it's probably likely that Edward never really intends to kill them, but he wants Philippa to intercede so that he can back down but maintain the appearance of being a feared and ruthless leader mm. who loves his mm. wife. Mm. But it's still very much in character as something that Philippa has done, so even though it might be exaggerated, there's no reason to think that it, it didn't happen. Yeah, so it could still be that he did, even if it was theatre... He said, right, behead them. And she goes, no, please, in public, mm. I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, please. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, and fundamentally, she is a very popular queen. Um, obviously, he's a bit biased, but uh, Foissart describes her as the most gentle queen, most liberal and most courteous that ever was queen in her days. She was wise, gladsome, humble, devout, free-handed and courteous, and in her time she was richly adorned with all noble virtues and well-beloved of God and men. He's not the only God one. God and men? Of God and men. Oh, right. <laughs> Little reference to that garden path that he keeps leading us up. <laughs> Uh, the usually cynical chronicler Thomas Walsingham described her as a most noble woman and a constant lover of the English, while the Chancellor of England stated that no Christian king or other lord in the world ever had so noble and gracious a lady for his wife. Um, if we're looking for some negatives, uh, her biggest failure is money. She's quite an extravagant spender and permanently in debt. Uh, despite the fact that income is uh, supplemented in 1333, 1334, 1335, uh, by 1338, she owed more than £4,500 to the Bardi Banco family in Florence, which equates to over £3,000,000 today. Well, because she's flinging tenors around the place, isn't she, to get um, <laughs> pregnant women off the block? Uh, in 1360, things got so bad that her household was permanently absorbed into that of Edwards, so all the annual income from her dower lands had to be settled just on paying off debts that were incurred prior to 1360. Oh, so he, he sort of takes charge of the situation, saying, mm. right, you don't have a household effectively now, you, any spending comes through me. Yeah, and uh, mm. despite all of this, the debts still weren't paid when she died, so she one of her deathbed requests was for Edward to pay off all of her debts. <laughs> Do us a solid, mate, I'm dying. <laughs> um, perhaps because of this, despite her kindliness, she also has a bit of a reputation of being overly litigious, at times, mm. um, and while her household uh, often failed to pay its debts when moving between residences, so they'd go to a new palace, say, we need stuff, we need food, we need clothes, we need wine, etc., etc., mm. and then they leave and just don't really pay. Oh. Now, in, in her defence, it's not all her own fault. As you said, Edward has got this policy of a magnificent Arthurian court of chivalry and splendour and whatnot, and this mm. does require excessive spending on clothes and everything. Mm. So she's kind of duty-bound yeah. to spend. And the large number of children that she has also puts quite a significant burden on her household costs. Yeah. And I'm surprised that's not the king's cost, though. It's, it's hers. So I don't imagine she's actually going out and buying the formula and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that could... That could come from him. Mm. Uh, and she did try to make some economic improvements in England, so she advised Edward to tackle some uh, expenses issues by uh, expanding commercially. So she encouraged Flemish weavers to settle and trade in England and also promoted the coal industry at Tyndale. That is so Flemish, isn't it? Mm. So they're used in the... Edward says, we need more money, we're going to have to tax them. And, and, um, I don't know. and she says... In Holland, when we need uh, more money, we do more business. <laughs> uh, Mark Ormerod, Edward III's biographer, dismissively described Philippa as a consort entirely devoid of political ambition and content to provide loyal support to an adored husband. That's nice, though. It is nice, but I guess there's a sense of her not actually doing an awful lot or not having a particularly strong role. So even if the intercessions, even though this is what she's famed for, she made fewer than her predecessors, so she averaged 1.8 per year compared to 4.6 for Isabella of France and 7 for Margaret of France, Edward first second wife. I guess the criticism would be that there's nothing, like, astonishing there. There's nothing really like, wow, she did that. It's all just like, yep, this is exactly everything that you expect a medieval consul to do, and she does it 
very, very well. Maybe that's a five then. That's your standard five. It's very good. Well, <laughs> it's very good. It's it's just lovely. Five seems a bit harsh. Harsh. I thought. Oh, I, was, I thought you were going to pull it down. Oh no, I was going up. I was going quite high for subject to it. I suppose I was just saying, like, why I wouldn't be maybe reaching for a nine or a ten because there's nothing. Oh yeah, because there's no, there's nothing. There that's, yeah, exactly. There's no big event or big thing that she did that stands the ages. Although there's that um, the university stuff. Foissant. The ideal of subjectivity, I suppose, like, would you want her to be your queen consort and was her queenship one that you'd have wanted? I think you'd probably say, yeah, this is... That's what you want yeah. from a queen. Good queening. Good, Yeah, good queening. <laughs> it is. All right, well, I'll, 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 you've nudged me up to a six, but I just feel like... I don't know. <laughs> it's difficult because subjectivity is often scores well if there's stuff going wrong and she helps put it right. But if she just keeps things going right... Maybe that's just as good. I don't know, six, anyway. I'm going to be more generous. I'm going to give her an eight. Wow. Yeah. You're, I'm normally the much more generous on this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just think, as I said, I think I'm, I'm not going higher than that because I don't think there's anything dramatic or different enough that really to, to wow. But yeah, I just think she is everything that you're meant to be as a mm. medieval consort. I think she does it really well. And I think she is a part of that sense of a golden age. I think her part of that puzzle is of that jigsaw is is important oh you make a good case graham and i don't want her to be punished and me later think i should do another <laughs> i'll do seven then okay <laughs> you've taught me up from a five to a seven okay but that that's that's my limit so that is 15 for subjectivity much better much better longevity philip is queen consort of england from the 24th of january 1328 to the 15th of august 1369 which is 41.5 years yeah that is a big score indeed gives made her a, up for that battle nice. indeed it gives her a score of 17 out of 20 which is the fifth best overall wow mm. dynasty not the program uh philip has about 12 or 13 children with edward iii in total um, but sadly, only five of those survive her. Mm. Uh, and those births range from the Black Prince in 1330, when she was 16, to Thomas of Woodstock, 25 years later in 1355. And wow. She's sort of getting 40. Gosh. That is such a disparity, isn't it? Make family get-togethers very yeah. interesting. Uh, impressively, five of her sons lived into adulthood, and four of these survived her. But with the Black Prince dying a year before Edward III, Philippa of Hainaut was not the mother of a king. Because oh, yeah. the throne skips a generation and went to the Black Prince's son, Richard II. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that gives her a dynasty score of uh, 15 out of 20. That's brilliant. Mm, joint 10th best overall. Mm. So she's making up the numbers here. She's making up the numbers, so her total score in the end is 53 into 10th place. Yeah, she's, um, she's broken into the top third, but, you know, that's not European spot. Indeed. <laughs> uh, but it's not, of course, all about the score. Does she have that certain something, that lasting legacy, the great achievement, the star quality that we call... Rex Factor! The argument in her favour, I guess, would be that if we think of Isabella of France last time, and it's a very tough act to follow... Isabella of France. Isabella yeah. was an amazing historical figure, but as I think I said at the time, technically, really, not a great consort. 
Yeah, did we give it to her? Oh yes, we did. Yeah, she was amazing. Yeah. But in terms of as a consort, you know, she overthrows and murders her husband and takes a lover. That's not what a queen's meant to do. Philippa maybe doesn't jump off the page with an invasion of the country or front page news scandal, but she does everything that she's actually meant to do as a mm. consort. So if you ask her subjects at the time, they would have all thought, "Oh yeah, of course she's, of course she's got the Rex factor. She's the queen. She's the key part yeah. of this magnificent court. Lots of sons, happy families." Shows magnanimity to Isabella. Everything that you want your queen to do. The question is, is this enough? Is it Rexy enough to be you, really yes. good and nice? Here's my case. Mm-hmm. I think that... that um, maybe that's what I was trying to get at with that initial five score, is that she's like... She's like a baseline Rex factor. That is... Five out of ten. <laughs> She's got like she's the Mario in when you're choosing your carts in Mario Kart. A bit of everything, spot on. So others get in because they got loads of scandal. Others get in because they got loads of um, whatever. Um, she'd be the gatekeeper. If you if you pass her, you've definitely got Rex Factor. But this is, I think she's the ideal. She was Edward wanted an ideal queen, and he he got one. I mean, it's nothing. It's nothing that flies off the page you know you could paint a medieval picture and it would be her she would fit all medieval pictures uh, in fairy tale pictures of a of a medieval period <laughs> sitting there underneath her conical tent probably probably dropping a hanky that sort of thing I think the problem is that it's like that fairy tale element where you think but you, it needs a um, it needs one a dramatic element to uh, win it so things like the Battle of Neville's Cross if that had been true you think that, yeah. those are the moments you need, those little great moments where when Edward's away, he leaves the country, she's got to deal with the problem and that's when she steps up. It says, most of the time I'm happy yeah. to sit back, but when trouble comes, here I am to sort it out. And I feel like it's the lack of one of those is, I think, a um, a stumbling block for her in the Rex Factor. Yes. It's like it's ideal queenship, but... Do you know what? I reckon all Rex Factor winners could make a good film. That's what gets them in. So they don't have to be good, they can be bad, and that makes a great film. The news isn't, as uh, Peep Show said, an endless uh, recital of all the buses that made it successfully home, but the <laughs> ones that crash. Um, there are a lot of crashes. Yeah, there's a lot of chaos in the medieval world, hmm. and she just brought the bus home successfully. Impressive in itself, but it doesn't make a good film. Hmm. I think Foissant's version embellishes it enough to make it a good film. Yeah. So we could make a good film, but we'd know that we were... It was just a fairy tale, yeah. Yeah. So I think for that reason, I'm going to oh. be a no. I want to give her a yes for being the idealised medieval queen, and I'm happy knowing that she doesn't get it, <laughs> because we haven't agreed. <laughs> Does that make sense? I think it just... I think you can be a great queen and a nice queen... Mm. but you need, you still, and get the Rex Factor, but you still, you need something a bit yeah. more than just doing the job. And we get these great stories from Frassart, but they're just not quite true, or not true enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. So it's a, a yes from Ali, but a no from me, which means that Philippa Faynort does not get the Rex Factor. But we like her. Yeah, 
Correspondence Corner. Anyway, that was the life and consortship of Philippa of Haynaught. Let us know what you thought about her and if you think she deserved the Rex Factor. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at Rex Factor Pod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page or email rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. And remember to send in your hashtag consort cards with a, an episode uh, illustration for Philippa of Haynaught. What could that be? It should be a fairy tale queen. It's got to involve a garden path, I think. Oh, yeah, sitting in a in a quaint garden. with. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use. Donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get lots of bonus content at www.patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor. And we've got some previously new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Lovely. Beth, Rachel Jaffe, John O'Griffith, Alex Rodka, E.B. Moore. John O'Griffith's my cousin, I think. Ah. I mean, there might be other John O'Griffiths in the world, but uh, <laughs> if it is, cheers, John O. <laughs> uh, Alex Rodka, E.B. Moore, Jenny Sophia, and Hedgard, Melissa Gear, Gear Harper, and A. Ebeno. Uh, and now for some messages, and first from uh, long-ago New Privy Councillors waiting for their uh, message on the podcast. Mm-hmm. First up, Lynn Epsley. I came to the podcast having read the intriguingly underwhelming recommendation in the WI magazine. Oh, yes. <laughs> that was brilliant. My favourite alley moment, a dying Charles II asks to be propped up to see Dawn. Who's Dawn? asks Ali. <laughs> Past Ali making present Ali laugh. yeah it's perfectly possible Uh, this from Maggie I found your podcast during the lockdown period and have been listening almost non-stop thanks for making history fun and interesting and for inspiring and generously allowing other similar podcasts keep safe and keep up the good work oh it's nice little podcast community now Mm. Uh, and Monica I've subscribed to your podcast because it was on my daughter Evie's list of things she wanted for her 16th birthday she listens to you and loves history and your take on it Oh, well, cheers. And uh, happy birthday to Evie. I was going to say 16th birthday, but it's probably been so long that they've been waiting. It's probably 17th or 18th by now. Yeah, probably driving listening to us now. <laughs> yeah. uh, outside of Privy Councillor Messengers, Maria has got in touch regarding your confusion, Ali, about who uh, Edgar the Peaceable Consort's Elfrith's first husband was and why you kept on thinking that she was married to a bishop. Right. I mean, that, that is a hell of a question. I don't know. <laughs> I'd just been listening to the whole series again backwards because the Podbean app refused to change its direction and I found it quite fun going back in time. Uh One interesting result. After a couple of times when Ali thought Elfrith's first husband had been a bishop and neither of you knew what had put that into his head, I've now listened to the episode where you, Graham, say that the guy who went to look at her for the king and then married her for himself was called, and quoting me now, Ethelwald, not to be confused with the bishop of the same name. <laughs> I suppose that was asking for trouble, really. Yes. So what you did is you said the word Ethelwald just at the point when my brain was at its most receptive and <laughs> I was thinking about a bishop. And from that point, that's glue. Yeah. Um, so I'm afraid that it sounds like, thank you very much. You've, you've found the cause, but there's no coming back from that. And finally, a consort limerick from Louise Brimwickham. Oh, Yes! Uh, this time, Isabella of Angoulême. John? Indeed. Yes. Isabella increasingly mad, wed Hugh, which raised eyebrows a tad. By contract, he ought to have wed her young daughter, and she'd <laughs> been betrothed to his dad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's... It's such a skill. I imagine there's loads of um, 
she had loads of rough drafts where there's just focusing on different parts of the rain. Like <laughs> you could do do a whole. I say this with confidence. I imagine it would be possible to do a whole limerick on just being married to John and how rubbish that is. But no, she just managed to get an incredibly complicated bit of uh, family history. Confounded your expectations. She's brilliant. Uh, that's all from us and uh, from Philippa of Haynot. We'll be back next time with the first consort of Richard II, Anne of Bohemia. Ooh. Hmm. Ge- first German? No. Austrian? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's a garden path again, isn't it? <laughs> no, just geography. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time. Cheerio.